This is Cody Turner. In this episode, I speak with the leaders of the Young Democratic Socialists of America chapter at UConn, Tori Zane and Gino De Angelis. Apologies if I'm butchering your name, Gino. This was a dope episode to record. We talked about a slew of issues, including capitalism versus socialism, healthcare, specifically Medicare for all versus the public option, what's called fully automated luxury communism, We talk about contemporary politics and the 2020 race and other topics as well. And they did their best to convert me to the Bernie revolution. And I think they were pretty persuasive. I'm not really sure where I stand right now. But in any case, I appreciate them coming on the podcast. And I hope you enjoy the ride. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Maybe just introduce yourselves first and talk about what got you into democratic socialism and what inspired you to join this movement. Okay, I can go first. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, so I'm Tori uh, Zane. I'm the president of UConn YDSA. Um, I'm a senior econ and American studies double major and a Spanish minor. Um, so obviously a lot of my classes are kind of focused on like political economy and that kind of thing. Um, I was raised uh, pretty left wing. I don't think I really had like that classic like radicalization moment that people talk about because it was kind of just um, obvious to me from a young age. My mom made me read a lot of stuff when I was little, like, um, about, like, human rights, I guess. Um, But I do think it is important to think about socialism as, like, a scientific way of approaching problems, not, um, you know, a purely moral and ethical situation, if that makes sense. Um, So I was drawn to DSA because I think there's just a lot of potential to get like-minded people together. not so much to have like a huge socialist movement at UConn, but to do productive things. Like we like to do community aid. Um, and How long has DSA been around at UConn? Um, like two and a half three years, years, three years. Okay, yeah, so relatively new. Yeah, this it's pretty. We both know the person that started it. He was the former president. Seems. I mean, um, obviously, it seems like the movement has grown at a national level. A oh, lot, for just sure. Over yeah. The past couple of years. Um, I mean, the DSA has like vastly expanded membership after the 2016 election. Um, and then YDSA, which is affiliated with that, has gotten bigger too. Yeah. Cool. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick yeah, sure. to the, the billions of listeners? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm Gino DeAngelis. I'm a senior journalism and political science double major and a Ooh. philosophy minor. So yeah, like you, Love there's it. a lot of politics stuff that I'm into. I was actually raised like pretty conservative. My mm. family loved Ronald Reagan. Like my grandparents are extremely conservative, but I've always kind of been like more like liberal. And then when Bernie Sanders first started running for president back in 2015, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So I was like always more left wing. And then after the 2016 election, I started like reading a lot of like actual like socialist and communist literature. And that kind of pushed me to be like an actual socialist. And as Tori said, I I was friends with uh, our old president because he did another club with me, and he got me to start going to meetings. And then uh, I started helping him plan some stuff, like 
last year there was the Charlie Kirk mm. when Charlie Kirk came to campus. Yeah, we did, I remember that. Yeah, there was a bunch of progressive orgs um, kind of got together to have like a counter event. I remember that. Yeah, I remember hearing and, about that. And like we were kind of at the forefront of that. You helped with that, like advertise it. And, uh, so I actually went to that Charlie Kirk event. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm not necessarily a huge fan. But yeah. I, no, I mean, right. we can talk about that if you want. But um, it's a similar backstory for me, actually. I come from a very conservative family. My my parents are actually Trump supporters, but I've always been very liberal. Um, like I said before we started the podcast, I was a big supporter of Andrew Yang. That might be because um, I'm very focused on philosophy of AI. I teach a kind of computer ethics class here in the computer science and engineering department. So I'm thinking about automation a lot, and I've, I really found his, uh, just his discussion of automation and his universal basic income proposal very attractive. But I'm very Bernie curious now, and I'm totally open to be being converted to the, to the revolution. So maybe you'll change my mind a little bit. But I thought we could, um, in the conservative circles that I run in, I feel like there are a lot of myths surrounding what democratic socialism is. And I feel like people obviously conflate democratic socialism with communism and maybe just like regular socialism. So I thought maybe one thing that we could do before I push back a little bit is um, just dispel some of these myths, if that's okay. So the first, first question I have here is, how is democratic socialism different from communism or just regular socialism? To someone who doesn't know that much about it, how would you how would you characterize you that first? difference? Because sure. I have like the theory um, answer, and you'll have like the normal person. Answer. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm ready for all answers. Yeah, we do the we do that um, routine. Um, well, first of all, socialism is inherently democratic. Um, the name is just kind of, I think, a product of American socialists trying to sound less scary <laughs> because people associate the word a lot of things. Like as you're talking about, there's a lot of misconceptions about what it means. Um, but democratic socialism doesn't mean anything specifically different from just socialism. Okay. Um, also, we're both communists, like we're both Marxists. Right. Um, yeah, but essentially like Marxists, communists, socialists, what well, in general, um, it's about worker control of production. So instead of um, a factory or whatever mode of production, whatever way people make profit, being owned by one person who then employs people that do the labor and then the excess profit that they generate goes back to the boss, everything is owned and the decisions are made by the workers as like a cooperative. So that's like my normal person definition. That's, that's Gino a, can talk more. Yeah, so like, we describe ourselves as socialists and like in the traditional sense, socialism is like a mode in between like capitalist production and communist production where communism is completely owned. Like everything is controlled by the workers. There's no longer a profit motive. There's no longer really ownership of private property. There's still personal property, which there's a difference. Private property would be owning a factory, like a, a fishing vessel, uh, things like that. Like personal property is like these microphones, your iPad, the computer, your house, like stuff you actually use. You still get to keep that. You get to keep that. It's just communism is focused on owning like what produces the things that make society run. But um, like your question, you asked what differs it from communism. And I, I feel like the question you're asking is more what differs it from things like the Soviet Union 
or like China or things like that. Sure, because that's the typical that's, conservative yeah. rejoinder. Like, look, we've tried this before. It might sound good in theory in the abstract, but when you actually try to implement it on the ground, mm-hmm. it just leads to death and starvation. So what would be your response to that? So the problem with those um, two specifically, I guess, um, is they weren't truly even socialist, let alone communist. They called themselves that because at the beginning of those states being like founded after their respective like revolutions or whatever, they were actually like socialists, like especially Russia. But they kind of became this thing called state capitalism, which is when the state controls everything, like all modes of production, all aspects of like that. But instead of um, converting it to be worker-owned or owned by the greater population, it's just controlled by the state. Um, this is a this is what uh, like Lenin advocated for, which is why we're not really like which is why we're not really Leninists or Trotskyists or things like that. Just a takeover of the proletariat and Ye- then they rule everything. Is that what did Marx have uh, that in his? So final that's vision? different. That's yeah. dictatorship of the proletariat. Okay. We, you want to talk about that? So the proletariat um, in Marxist terms is almost everyone, right? That's almost every person. Um, It's every person who's employed as a wage laborer and they don't own the building or the materials that they use to produce the product. It's everyone Um, except the capitalist class. Right, exactly. So when you say like proletariat takeover um, in these states as they are run now, it's not because the workers, the wage workers, are in control of the production. Um, And it is not like a super democratic society where they come together and make these decisions about how they're going to produce goods or how they're going to distribute goods. It's decided by like a very centralized government, which I think is a lot of the criticism of socialism, but that's not the actual definition of like what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, so am I correct in thinking that yeah, Marx thought that socialism was the precursor to communism? And he has this theory of historical materialism. I really don't know that much about Marx yeah. and stuff. I haven't yes. delved that yeah. too deeply. He and kind of thought that like um, society would follow like a natural progression with like feudalism and then capitalism, yeah. and then they would build up enough materials, but also enough uh, like discontent, I guess, yeah. to then become like move towards communism. Yeah, I just wanted to, re- so I was on the Democratic Socialists of America website last night, and one question that they have here is, uh, um, oh, am I looking at the right thing here? Oh, yeah. Um, Socialists have been among the harshest critics of authoritarian communist states. Just because their bureaucratic elites call them socialists did not make it so. They also called their regimes democratic. Democratic socialists have always opposed the ruling party states of those societies just as we oppose the ruling classes of capitalist societies. Yeah, Is that exactly. A fair summary? Yeah, that's basically what we're saying, yeah. So I want to talk about capitalism because my basic position on it right now is that I agree with a lot of the I find myself agreeing with a lot of the Marxist critiques of capitalism, just how it leads you to be a cog in the machine, you can easily be exploited, right? The capitalist classes are just, you know, they're going to do everything that they can to expunge as much money out of your work as possible. It leads to a kind of commodity fetishism where all of your meaning in life is just tied to, you know, what your job is or something like that. So I agree with all that. But then I also find myself agreeing with the fact that capitalism has risen, I think, 700. I mean, you might disagree with this, but this would be a talking point on the conservative side. It's risen like 700 million people out of poverty since 2001. 
And it might not be a perfect system, but it's one of the it's one of the best systems that we have in terms of um, just increasing the average standard of living for people. So, so that specific um, like statistic you brought up, the seven hundred million, is it? Yeah. Okay. This um, is from Pew Research, by the yeah, way. Yeah. That statistic has a lot of issues that I've come to grapple with over the last like four years of being a socialist, and that a lot of that is those people that are risen out of poverty now have like wage labor jobs, which doesn't mean that they are no longer poor or they're no longer destitute or they are no longer being exploited in any way. Like a lot of those people are in like the global south or what do we want to call the global south is there a better word for that because like <laughs> what do you mean by the global south the global south is traditionally like well another word for it is the third world you know okay. like not developed countries but like those are all kind of problematic descriptors because they're not all in the global south and things like that. it's not important um <laughs> it's important but but um like a lot of those are like sustenance farmers or like villages in the global south are the people that are risen out of poverty but they are now working in a factory or they're working as fishermen for like a company that came in so the argument that capitalism necessarily lifts people out of poverty is well it isn't necessarily true like you could see that in the first world definitely but that's due to the fact that there's the inherent part of capitalism that exploits the uh like global south much more than it exploits the people here because it's easier to um extract value and wealth out of people that aren't seen by a general population yeah um i think it's also worth noting that capitalism inherently pushes people down so it's either it's trying to separate everyone into either um, capitalist class or working class. So this kind of like idea. Is there like of, a neat distinction between the two though? Like when people yeah, talk it's in about these binary ownership. terms. Yeah, it's about ownership. There I think is, there okay. are some, like for me personally, I think like entertainers is kind of a gray area because they're yeah. like, I mean, it depends on. It depends on what they do. If they're just, it depends on what they if do. If they're just an actor, then yeah. they're a proletarian. But if they also produce or something like that, then they own. Yeah, I think there's there that. there are gray areas in our world in terms of people that are making money off of like writing a book or something like that. But the vast majority of people fit pretty cleanly into either owning what they make money off of or working for someone else and making money off of them. So it is a confusing in a way because that doesn't mean that everyone that's a proletariat is poor, right? Because there's doctors that are technically wage laborers. They don't own the hospital they work at. They're a proletariat, but obviously they make quite a good deal amount of money more than we do. Right. Um, I want to talk about healthcare too, by the way. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to mention that. Um, and also, when you think about small business owners, some of them are not successful and not wealthy, um, but they still own the building, they still collect wages from their workers. So there are these neat distinctions, but obviously it doesn't fit into the whole idea of like a very wealthy capitalist and a very impoverished proletariat. Um, but that's just an aside. Um, I just wanted to say that um, like capitalism prevents people from becoming less impoverished. Um, 
when it doesn't provide, when people don't have services like healthcare and um, education, and there's kind of this cyclical, um, like people that are proletarians very rarely can become part of the capitalist class. They prevent people from climbing out of poverty, even if they have more commodities than they used to. So what do you do with the argument that, well, actually, capitalism allocates goods and services the most efficiently because the free market, just hold on, I know, just hold on, give me, let me say it. The free market, um, just because of its competitive nature, it actually empowers the consumer because every time the consumer makes a choice to buy something, they're saying that that thing should still be in the free market. And any system, any business which doesn't satisfy the consumer and which doesn't allocate goods efficiently will be booted out of the free market. And you know, people talk about uh, government bureaucrats and how uh, they don't know how to handle things. And just if we want to allocate goods the most efficiently, we should stick with the free market. Um, so I think a good way to counter that is to just look at any market that exists, um, especially like agriculture is a great example. So if People, if there was no government intervention, obviously there are a ton of sub subsidies in agriculture. If it was just farmers selling directly to people, um, two things would happen. Um, well, they're both kind of happening anyway, but one, um, farmers would not be able to support themselves. The prices that people can pay for food and are willing to pay for food, which would be like the free market competitive price, demand, whatever, um, is not enough to support the person producing that. Like, it doesn't line up. Like, that's that's why we have to subsidize, like, agriculture, because farmers literally can't support themselves on people's demand for food. It's a, like, highly labor-intensive, highly expensive process, um, and people are not willing to pay huge amounts of money for basic food items, which obviously they shouldn't. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it's the same for a lot of different um, products, but also, it causes consolidation. Um, people do try to produce more efficiently and produce more cheaply in order to meet consumer demand, and that creates environmental problems um, because that's how when you see like factory which I totally farms, agree with. By the way, yeah. I totally concede that there are um, negative externalities which the market mm -hmm. doesn't take into account, and that in such a case there should be probably government regulation. Yeah, yeah, like it, when <laughs> when people are trying to produce more efficiently. Um, it just leads to, I don't know, people call it externalities. I don't think that's a good way to talk yeah. about it because it's not just, it's not a mistake. It's not like, something that happens by accident. Yeah, it's intended to do that. Like the point is to consolidate everything into these like fast moving, um, like as cheap as possible. Yeah, they, like, no, they have no systems. incentive to care for the environment because it's not going to help them from a profit point of view. Right, exactly. And I have like two things. Yeah. The first is just, um, on the choice thing, um, there's this interesting thing that capitalists always bring up, which is, oh, you have choice under capitalism. But like the consumer, the prole, whatever you want to call them, doesn't really. They don't choose what is produced within the market. Like they don't choose because it's like, oh, you have this choice between two products, but you mm -hmm. didn't choose like those two products are the ones you're presented with. What if you don't like either of them? Well, that doesn't really work out. But you could and, choose if you start your own business or something like yeah, that. Whereas in the alternative system, <laughs> well, yeah, no, well, yeah, uh, yeah. But the but, well, I guess my question would be: Do you get choice in the alternative system when the government? Well, I guess well w under socialism, um, it's there isn't necessarily a centralized government, 
Right. It's more it's the public ownership. The public, everyone. like the the people who produce things choose how it's produced, and the people that consume those things have a say in it as well, because they can go to the people that produce things and say, "Hey, we need this thing, or we would like this thing." Can you explain how that works at a more fine grained level? Because I kind of intuitively understand, like, okay, it's going to be a public ownership <laughs> of goods. We're not talking about a centralized government where there's a small group of people deciding yeah, everything. Yeah. We're talking about everyone collectively yeah. owning something. But how does that? When it's actually implemented on the ground, how does that play out? So there's a problem with that, which is that most socialist and communist like writers or anarchists or whatever left-wing writers tend to, they give like a framework that they think it will work out, but they go, we don't actually know how this will happen. We don't know what will happen after the revolution or after the transition into like a socialist system. Like, I guess in my view, I'm kind of a... I'm I'm like a syndicalist. I've said that at meetings and yeah. stuff, which is like syndicalists are very like into union organizing. They're into like things being set up like a union would be mm-hmm. or like the the platonic the platonic ideal of a union. Mm. So like under that kind of system it would be all of the different sectors of society are set up by like the workers coming together and democratically deciding like their working conditions, the times they work, what they produce, what they work with, mm. and how they deal with the other like unions within society. And then but that's kind of more only economically speaking. There's also like the idea of like local government sort of things. Like communities would be set up like there'd be count like not necessarily councils. Like I'm not I'm not a Trotskyist. <laughs> um but There'd be, like, these group, like, when you go to your town hall, if there's a public hearing, like, sort of like that, maybe, but, like, more everyone has an equal vote or an equal say Mm -hmm. in how things in their community is run, and then they talk to the other communities, and then they come to decisions. It's much more based upon, it it is almost pure democracy, almost, in at least my view, where it's, like, everyone chooses how things everyone will have a say in decisions that affect them mm-hmm. and then other people will look at those decisions and come to a decision on how that decision affects them yeah so this is another quote from the dsa website which might i think summarize what you're saying so it says social ownership could take many forms such as worker-owned cooperatives or mm-hmm. publicly owned enterprises managed by workers and consumer representatives mm-hmm. okay so another thing that i hear is, and I don't know whether you agree with this, but that billionaire shouldn't exist. This has kind of become a talking can I, point. Can I say something first? When, or do you, um, is that, well, so, yeah. yeah, my follow-up would be, I, I'm a, I don't know what to think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when people give me statistics, like the top three richest people in America own however many more, as much money as like the bottom however many people, yeah. it's just astonishing to me. And there seems to be a kind of injustice about that. But this... Logic which says that you can only make that amount of money by exploiting other people. There's no moral way to make that amount of money. I'm not sure where I stand whether I agree with that because it seems to me that there can be some people who start a business and they actually, they create wealth in doing it. They don't steal wealth necessarily, but they employ people. They give people jobs. Or like, what about someone like J.K. Rowling who has made, (laughs) I'm not sure if she's a billionaire, but she's made just hundreds of millions of dollars by only providing good to the world. That doesn't seem like a case where she's exploited people on her way to that inordinate amount of wealth. So do you want to go first? Because yeah. I have like four things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm well. Write them down. Okay. <laughs> um, so 
I guess the one thing, okay, so when you do start a business and you are employing people, um, you're not going to make billions of dollars if you pay your employees the worth of what they are doing. Um, you're not going to make a profit if they are doing the labor and you're extracting wealth from their labor. So even though it might not look like, you know, we think of exploitation, we think of like a, like a sweatshop, right? We think about people in really horrible conditions. They might not have horrible conditions. They may be paid a comfortable wage, um, but they are still producing more value than they're receiving in their wages. So that's still technical exploitation. And the owner of that business is not making that money. He had an idea and he is getting money from the people he employs. So what can I just um, stop you for a sec? Would this be a fundamental disagreement? Because capitalists would say, well, their worth, the value of their work is determined by the market. And you're saying, no, there's an objective value to their work, which is, is independent of the market. And we need to recognize that. Um, yeah. Well, I also think that people can't like people's worth isn't based necessarily on... I mean, like, the like, worth, the value of their job, not them as a human. Sure. I mean, there's no way to accurately measure the value of a human being to a society, right? Like, we do it based on, like, economic value, but I don't think that's, like, a true representation of what someone's worth is. I agree um, with that. Yeah. And what was the other part of the question? Sorry, I was uh, getting distracted. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So also, I think it's important to point out that there's like a huge difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. Like the That's amount the like amount this. of money yeah. that oh, crazy. that difference makes, like between that, we kind of group them into one yeah. like class, which I guess they, they are, are, obviously. But there's a huge difference. And like, when we look at, I was talking before about how like entertainers can fall into this gray area, right? Like they don't exactly cleanly fit the like uh, working class and capitalist class. Um, right. J.K. Rowling, I mean, has she produced any good? Like we can debate Harry Potter's worth in the world, but that's like I'm not, that's a, I'm not a huge stand. <laughs> that's, that's an aside. Um, I think that aside from the fact that it's going to be very rare for someone to produce something that is so so valued that they truly earn like that much money like they really create um and also somehow distribute because then you're thinking about like okay people are like operating the printing press and distributing the books and selling them at the bookstores and like someone's working at the bookstore someone built the bookstore um someone built the editing and the publishing so once those people suppose they still got the full value of their labor and J.K. Rowling got, you know, whatever was left over because maybe people just love the book and buy so many copies. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably not going to be a billionaire. Like, I think that would be very unlikely. Um, and even if you were, I think that to have that much money when other people are like can't even go to the doctor and can't afford food and are dying, um, I think that's immoral to just hold on to it. So even if you did make it in a way that wasn't exploitive to anyone else. So Tori covered like two of the things I wanted to talk about mostly. Like I'll run through them quickly, which is just like you, she's right. You'll, you will never make billions of dollars off of like your own labor. Like there's the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. And an example I saw, I think today or yesterday was at the democratic debate, like we should talk about that we, too. We could talk about that, that a little insane. bit. But like Michael Bloomberg said that uh, something about Bernie Sanders having three houses. Yeah. And I think yesterday, like night by like 8 p.m., the amount of money Michael Bloomberg had made since the debate 
was more than the worth of Sanders' three houses and all the money he makes working in Congress, which is insane to think about. Someone could earn that much money. Earn, yeah. Well, yeah, earn or get that much money in 24 hours through... I don't know what Michael Bloomberg did over the last 24 hours, but I doubt it. Well, a lot of it could be considered traditional like work or labor. And that's how it goes into, like Tori talked about, Laborers, like the value of your labor is determined by the market. It's determined by what people are willing to pay you, which is not exactly, which isn't how socialists look at things. Like socialists want to move actually past a profit motive or a money motive for things to be made. So in a socialist system, there wouldn't be billionaires because there wouldn't be a need to be a billionaire. Like everyone would live comfortably, everyone would have the things they would need and then things they wanted provide for, provided for them. Mm. So there wouldn't be a need to own a building in New York City or own multiple houses because those would be like things like boats, I guess, or like travel would be a public commodity. So everyone could go where they wanted. They could go to like on vacation or whatever. And they'd also have a place to live. They'd have health care. They'd have food. Um, and then there's the rallying thing, which is interesting. So it's just an example. Yeah, of that, you know? but like there, like it's really easy to illustrate where it's like a lot of her money comes from like the cost of a book to produce a book is cheap, mm-hmm. but a lot of that money comes from you have to pay the people who made it some amount of money. You have to pay the people who moved the book to where it's going some amount of money. You have to pay the people who produced the like pulp to make the paper some amount of money and but by the end of that the publishing house and the person who gets royalties from the book still have to make money under a capitalist system or else it's not profitable so the price is jacked up so the money she makes is kind of just excess taken away from the money that the people who produced everything else should have made or from the consumer or from the consumer themselves um and then there was just this really interesting like study I read like three years ago. I forget the name of it. I have to look for it again, which is there's like this like they it was like a political science or an economics study and it like gave a coefficient between the a person's labor or not a person's labor, a person's like wage and then their happiness. Like they looked at people, they asked them how happy they were and then they like did other things to like kind of try to quantify that and that's like kind of impossible to quantify but like there's ways to say like oh why you're happy or you're comfortable or whatever mm-hmm. and it was like i think 175 thousand dollars a year it just completely plateaus yeah i think i've heard that and before. then at a million it goes up a little bit yeah and then the more you go up it actually tends to go down a bit mm. because like you you kind of buy into the system and you feel like you should always be earning more and you're never like satisfied with what you have and so that kind of is like at like $175,000 a year, most people will be able to pay for everything they need and then the stuff they want. Like you could pay for a house and you could pay for a car, I guess, which I don't know if cars should exist, but like. No. <laughs> yeah, we can get into that too. And another study that hit my radar, which might feed into what you're saying, and I forget where this is from, but it showed that um, your happiness, 
uh, is more dependent upon how you compare yourself to others that are above you. Mm -hmm. So it could be that all boats are rising, the people that are least advantaged in society and the people that are most advantaged. But if inequality is simultaneously rising as all boats are rising, you, your material well-being might be going up, but you're actually getting less happy because the people that are above you are getting higher above you, mm -hmm. and you're just comparing yourself to them. So there's, yeah, there's, that's possible. Yeah. You wanna? Yeah, also like wages have stagnated, so their boats might not even be rising at all on the lower part. Um, but I also wanted to mention, you probably know a lot more about this as like a philosophy student, um, but the like virtue ethicist idea of happiness and how yeah. you're not actually truly happy if you are doing things that are immoral. Um, so I like do truly believe that about like billionaires. Like I don't think they can really feel fulfilled or happy with the knowledge that they could, that first of all, that they're exploiting people and even if they have ways to justify that. And also that they could vastly improve the lives of so many people and they are simply choosing not to because they've convinced themselves they deserve this. Yeah, I'm a teaching assistant right now for the social ethics class. And mm -hmm. right now we're actually going over, we just finished Aristotle and virtue ethics and the professor of the class, his name is Paul Bloom. We're going I over- I took that class, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> We're going over one of his papers, which is literally called Morality is Necessary for Happiness. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, that's a whole nother philosophical rabbit hole we could go down. I mean, I definitely think that these you know, people that are making all this money in the capitalist system, they don't think they're doing anything morally wrong. So I mean, you know, maybe they're just self-deceiving themselves or something like that. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up is this idea of what's sometimes called fully automated luxury communism. Mm -hmm. And you know, people talk about how we're in kind of a late stage capitalist phase. And I, I guess, yeah, I just want to get your reaction to it. So I guess the idea would be that, look, automation might not necessarily be a bad thing. It could be that, you know, capitalism plays itself out. We invent these machines that are able to eliminate human drudgery. And maybe, you know, there's this hard economic problem that we have to solve when people are displaced from their work. And maybe we can solve that via some form of universal basic income or something like that. And... I don't know, I'm open to that. Then we could kind of live in a society where everything's taken care of for us because these machines are producing everything and we can just kind of reap the benefits of automation. Um, I, so I guess my question would be, let's just assume that we square that economic circle and we take care of that. I feel like there's a deeper existential question as to whether how people are going to get their meaning in life because it seems like everyone right now gets their meaning in life from their work. And I guess the ideal picture would be well, look, now you can do, you can follow your artistic pursuits or you can do whatever you would otherwise want to do if you didn't have to get a job in order to put food on the table. And that seems to me like a kind of techno utopia, which I'm all for. But the alternative dystopian version of that, which I'm worried about, is we slip down a kind of rabbit hole to, to a kind of hedonistic Wally society. If you've seen that movie. Yeah, I actually was about to. Where people, you know, instead of choosing productive things to do because they don't have to work now, they're choosing to do drugs, they're choosing to eat unhealthy. So yeah, I guess I don't know which is more likely to manifest itself, but that, that's one worry that I have about that. I, um, well, this is not exactly your question, but I actually don't support fully automated luxury communism as a concept, um, like at all. I, <laughs> I mean, me and Gino might disagree on that. I disagree somewhat, but only like, uh... <laughs> Well, we'll talk about work. Yeah, I yeah. Um, so I kind of agree with that idea that with 
theoretically in this society where somehow we've gotten machines to take care of everything and we don't actually have to do anything. Um, I think that could lead to like the loss of a feeling of purposefulness. Not that I think you need work in the way that we understand it to live. Um, but I, I just don't really see that being kind of like a healthy way to exist. Um, so you how, agree that we, that this is a bad I idea? I don't like the idea of fully automated electric okay. communism, no. But it's not just for that idea. I also just think it's not actually feasible when people talk about it um, because like you think about getting the materials for the robots, um, the people that have to code and fix them, maintain them, implement them, um, like, I don't ever see that actually existing in the way that we think about it. And I also think even if we then got robots that were advanced enough to run these and we have, like, AI and all this kind of stuff, um, there would probably be some kind of situation where you would still need human beings to, like, intervene on that system and do some kind of repair or some Like, I don't know. I just don't... I don't still think it's feasible. Um, I also think that... Some amount of automation is helpful, um, but also a lot of human drudgery that exists right now isn't due to a lack of automation. Um, it's due to like bullshit jobs. So that's like a like kind of a buzzword. Like bullshit jobs is like a like I think that there's a book about that oh. out. Um, but a lot of positions in our society are kind of like weird middle management jobs that are sort of useless um and like we need to have them because in our world people need to work full time to live um but if that wasn't the case and like people were paid enough you know if people set their own hours they work like part-time um they're paid enough to live they have free health care um they have like free food they have the the things that you need um we could just get rid of all those bullshit jobs and then people could then do part-time jobs to replace one full-time job and still be able to live like comfortably sure. mm -hmm. um and i think that is a much more utopian society in my view than not having any responsibilities whatsoever i guess yeah no and i definitely agree with you that i don't think this as i understand it fully automated luxury communist society wouldn't entail that there are no jobs whatsoever like you say there are certain there are people that need to overlook the ais and machines my understanding of the idea is that there just aren't enough jobs to go around anymore like maybe there's some high level jobs that people still need to do, but all those middle skill, lower skill jobs are now eliminated. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I still think there's the question of like materials and mining and um, like production of the machines. Like, and I mean, we also like, I don't know, like maybe it's just cause I'm a little bit like technophobic, <laughs> but like, I'm, <laughs> like low key I'm a Luddite, but like, I don't want, I feel like that's kind of, an isolating way to live like you're not going to go to like you're going to go to a restaurant and be served by a robot or like you're going to send your kid to school and their teacher is going to be like a computer screen like I just don't think that's a good way to live but and yeah and, it, and I'm totally worried about that too and just the elimination of public spaces malls closing down and I feel like all of that is contributing to the increasing political polarization that we see in society because with less shared public spaces you know that's a place where we can at least put the politics aside and interact with one another, but the automation, if it eliminates that, it, it's just worse for the polarization. Yeah, and I, I want it. like decommodified public spaces. Like I don't want the public space to be like a mall. I'd rather it be like right, a park right. or something. But just capitalism yeah. in your face all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's that's just my take on it. I think Gino yeah. probably has a different one. I have a slightly different one. 
So, I had to go at this from two angles. So, I guess I don't necessarily disagree that this was possible. I just don't know in what... Again, I don't know how this would take form. Which is the easy way out that every like socialist philosopher always goes. Like, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I guess the idealized version of like fully automated... Like, having a fully automated society would be... Not necessarily... Would come from a place of a more socialist foundation where these it eliminated working it eliminated jobs like socialism wants to eliminate the traditional understanding of work which is this thing you have to do to live like there will still like under socialism there will still be labor people will still have to produce things people will still have to do certain things to keep society running but it's not like a thing you do all day every day until you die it's a thing where it's like okay i have to do this or else society doesn't run and most people tend will probably agree to be like yeah, I, I, I should do that because then society won't run. <laughs> um, but, like, I guess automation from a socialist perspective would be more you automate the stuff that absolutely does not need to be done by humans. You'd automate manufacturing, like, chairs or or growing food or whatever. I, I think you need humans to grow food. Maybe not. I work on a farm, so I get to... I, okay. I buy all my food from a grocery store and just slide my little card in, so yeah. I'll take your word for it. But I'd say things like, <laughs> let's say a teacher. I'd say a teacher would still be human. There'd uh -huh. still be people. There's there definitely still be people that want to be teachers. Like you like being a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. And there'd be there wouldn't be the worry that you have of eliminating public spaces or eliminating things like that, because a socialist society would almost be focused on that sort of thing of the develop not i guess intellectual development of people but just things that people enjoy like going to see a movie or a play or going to a park going fishing which mark springs up in one of his writings he talks about in an ideal communist society you wake up you farm for two hours there's something else in the middle i don't remember I thought it was like an eight 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 thing. Was it an eight eight? I don't know. That's that's a that's a. No, I thought it was like work, fishing, sleeping. No, that's IWW stuff. Okay, never mind. But um, <laughs> like he he says he gives this whole list of things you do, and then at night you go fishing, and then you read, and then you go to bed, and it's my like my dad oh. builds bamboo fly rods, and he's a huge fisherman. So <laughs> yeah, that's that is. sounds good to me. Like, so like an ideal society like that would be, there would still be like like the a college would be more focused on i'm just using this as an example actual like intellectual development of a society instead of giving getting people a degree so they can get a job so they don't starve to death um and then i want to come at this from the other angle which is the problem with automation that we're getting that we're coming towards in under a capitalist society kind of doesn't have an answer necessarily like the capitalist class doesn't really know what to do with the people that don't have a job. Mm -hmm. So the idea of a universal basic income is actually a problem due to the fact that it's there to keep people living. It would be there to keep people alive under the system, but like they wouldn't have the ability to rise above or get out of this basic way of living. So they could still be, like, it would be a way to keep them from, keep them, like, um, comfortable. Maybe not even comfortable, but, like, dejected enough that they couldn't, like, try to change society, but still living. So, um... See, that sounds very conservative of you. 
like in a way, because what do you mean? just how people are like, well, you don't want to be dependent on the state on welfare programs. It keeps you kind of sucking oh, off the teeth so of the government. It's, it's not a welfare program. Most UBI systems right, that have yeah. been proposed actually take away money from other program, like universal programs, and would. Right, yeah. Not go towards anything sort sort like towards a universal healthcare system, which is completely different. It doesn't necessarily entail eliminating, um, like the healthcare industry or any industry. All it really does is make sure that things are still being produced for the capitalist class, so they can stay as the dominant, comfortable class, while not. Um, allowing the people below to organize themselves in a way that could overthrow the system or change the okay. system inherently. Like when, because when you have people working, there is the inherent danger that they're going to want to unionize or they're going to be talking about things like, oh, this job is bullshit. It, I'm doing nothing all day or I'm being exploited or whatever. And like a lot of public, I guess, disenfranchisement with the system comes from like the workplace or at least used to that's where union like the history of unions in the united states and around the world like is a illustrator of that yeah that is one uh criticism that i come across when talking with people about yang's ubi proposal is that it actually will eliminate some of these welfare mm -hmm. programs that currently exist but a lot yeah again a lot of it sounds like I, there's this notion of a value-added tax where he's going to tax i think these big tech and I might forgive me if I'm getting some of these details wrong, but he's going to tax some of these big tech companies, and that could potentially help stop the automation problem, specifically when you're talking about what you might call like so-so technologies, which are technologies that replace human workers but don't add a lot of extra value to society. So like the automated checkout things that you yeah. come across in the grocery store. They're not really adding a lot of pro productivity to society. They're just robots replacing the human and... Um, just doing what the human so, would otherwise so, do. So if you add the tax on it, um, then there wouldn't be an incentive for the people to get rid of the human workers if they're going to get taxed anyway. Yeah. Because the, the robots, you can't, there's no income tax yeah, when that's, it comes to that. That's correct. Like that would solve that issue of not letting people lose their job, but that's not the answer to the problem. Like the answer to the problem is moving beyond a profit-based system, the wage labor, like needing people to do wage labor. Like, under, like, a communist society, I believe, like, probably the way you would buy food in, like, a big city would be via, like, a grocery store-style thing. And it would, the way you check out would probably be, like, a computer saying what you took. Just because, like, you don't need someone to check you out. What, what I'm really saying is I, that is a solution, like, under a capitalist system, like, in the short term. Right. But... The actual but solution. But it's still within the capitalist still within infrastructure. The capitalist infrastructure. The solution would be have people control the way, have people control their own workplaces yeah. or the workplaces where things need to be done. And then you won't have this problem of people not having a job to make the money they need to live. They'd be provided what they need to live. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I also think UBI, especially at $1,000 a month, is just kind of like a band aid on like. A broken limb like it's just not it's not a solution it might keep people kind of going a little bit longer like I mean it's hard for me to say it would have no purpose because like you know obviously I would love to have a thousand dollars this month you know what I mean that would be a huge life changer it's like doubling my monthly income probably yeah yeah um but again like 
if also like maybe then your landlord would raise rent a thousand dollars. You know what I mean? And like there's also like some of the same arguments against UBI are sort of arguments against raising the minimum wage. But ultimately, I just think it's like not the most efficient way to use money that we use for welfare. Like I think expanding food stamps, um, expanding like, I don't know, help with childcare, like all that kind of thing would be much more like efficient use than just this like distribution of like a thousand dollars to everyone. So I want to talk about healthcare, but I just have one more kind of big picture question. And that's, I hear a lot of democratic socialists talking about Nordic countries as existing models. And then the conservative rejoinder, um, or at least the centrist rejoinder is that, well, look, these countries aren't really uh, socialist countries. They're really just, um, capitalist countries, and what you have is these government programs built upon a capitalist yeah. infrastructure. They're social democracies. Yeah, they're so okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Can you just yeah. say more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's like that that meme, right, with like Hulk Hogan and the other guy. Have you seen that? It's like basically oh, that argument a, back and yeah, forth. Yeah. The, throwing the chair. Throwing at the him? chair, where yeah. he's like, "Oh, like socialism doesn't work," and they're like, "Well, look at the Nordic countries," and they're like, "That's not socialism," and they're like, "Okay, can we implement it?" And they're like, "No, that's socialism." You know, it's like the the back and forth, whatever. Um, they're right. Like those those countries aren't socialist. Um, they're social democracies. Um, they're doing better than us. Um, they, yeah. They, yeah. Do you want to? Sure. Yeah. I'm I, basically. So, yeah. They are closer to socialism than we are, in some ways. Uh, sure. And they're doing a little bit better, but they could also be a lot better than they are. So then, yeah. so then, why go full communism? Can you just say, well, can we have that version of capitalism where we have more government programs and we expand the government, but we retain the fundamental capitalist infrastructure? Because it still has the inherent problems of capitalism. People are still being exploited for what they're working for. But there's also the big problem of capitalism. I, I, I never talked about capitalist efficiency. That was the thing I wanted to talk about earlier, which is capitalism has this idea of being efficient. But all that means is making as much profit as possible while expending as little money as possible. And in reality, those efficient means of production are not efficient at all. There's massive amounts of environmental and human costs that comes with producing all of these, like not just commodities, but like things people need. Like when you, like factory farming is not efficient. It just straight up is not. It, it, after a few like seasons, it can completely destroy the soil. It results in a huge amount of waste of just food stuff that just isn't sold or used. It kills animals that like live in those areas. It displaces people. So people but, are operating with a very narrow conception of efficiency, where efficiency yes. is just defined in terms of profit maximization. Exactly. But then there's also the problem of these Nordic countries. They still exploit, like, the global south. There's still the exploitation of not just the environment, but other people that is not po- – like, capitalism is not possible with the exploitation of these people. There needs to be sweatshops in these countries, or there needs to be extraction of material from these countries to produce all of this. Um and a lot of these social democracies used to be, like, used to have colonies in, like, Africa that were horrible. Like, um, King Leopold of, uh, don't remember which country, um, the Netherlands, I believe, or I'll look it up when I've Tory heard that talks. name before. Yeah, they, they have the, they, that, there was a colony in, um, that was exploited in Africa that, 
is only well is the reason that capitalism can run is it is there will be exploitation at some parts or even if like a country in Europe or a country in North America has universal health care universal basic income um, good jobs for the people good education there's still there's still the wealth inequality between the capitalist and proletarian classes but there's also the exploitation taking place of both the environment and the people at home and abroad yeah. I also think like it's good to remember that even when they have these like much stronger workplace regulations than the United States does, um, there's always going to be pushback against that because there is still a profit motive. So they're always going to be trying to find ways around that in order to make money while making money is still the main goal of, while there's still like this ruling class whose main goal is making money. Um, I do think that what we can take away from that is that when you have this like like when they do the good things that they do have the universal health care like free college all that kind of stuff it works out well for them and they have better quality of life so we can look at that and say like hey that's a partial success story um but that doesn't mean that we should just be mimicking their society for exactly what it is uh, king, Leop king leopold was the king of the belgians and it was the congo free state <laughs> which uh there's a book i need to read i forget i think it's king leopold's war um, I'll look that up later on my yeah. own, but um, it talks about how the the exploitation of the Congolese people at the time, and it, it's very similar to the exploitation that takes place in areas of China or areas of Vietnam or areas of Cambodia or where any like global South state, still places in Africa, places in the Middle East or South America, and even there's still places here where it's practically sweatshop like yeah. conditions yeah so the capitalist in me just you guys are making convincing arguments but the capitalist in me wants to respond to what you said so you, you say yes there are government regulations but businesses will do everything that they can to try to avoid them or they'll make it as unsafe as possible if they can maximize profit mm -hmm. but aren't they still beholden to the consumers and if their product isn't safe and it doesn't satisfy the consumers they'll be bolted out of the free market um, I mean, if that was the case, then we wouldn't have like climate change or like like problematic working conditions, right? Because that is the case. Like all the clothes we're wearing, you know, were made in unsafe working conditions and things that hurt the environment. But we don't really have options right now. We don't have like cruelty-free consumption options, right? Like we have to have clothes. We can buy secondhand or. We can try to get it from like some expensive company like Reformation that still exploits people in some way, um, but there isn't like true choice in our lives. Like we still have to pick, you know, the lesser of the evils or whatever. Um, and we also don't have full information about what's happening in these companies. Like we don't really get a behind the scenes look at production. Uh, most of us are very distant, not only from what we consume, but like usually where we work and like what we produce. Um, like people have such a like, just no understanding at all, I think of a lot of the production of what goes into what we consume. Like I worked on a farm for a little bit and like the amount that I just didn't know before about like food and how it's made and where it comes from, like it's just astronomical. Like, and I had no idea, like, like obviously I knew in this like socialist sense, like, oh, like, 
you know, like farmers are having a tough time and like it's so hard to do things sustainably because of the way our economic system runs. But I just didn't know the extent of that till I worked there. And like, it's not the farmer's fault that like a farm is, you know, hurting the environment. They have no other way to run it where they can still support themselves. Um, and like if workers were running their workplace, like it wouldn't be dangerous because they don't want it to be dangerous when they work there. You know what I mean? Like the boss doesn't care. He's not on the factory floor. Um, if the workers are in charge, they're like, hey, these machines need to be farther apart. Like we're not going to be here all day. Like the windows are going to be open, like that kind of thing. Um, and that's just a much that's a more efficient way to ensure that workplaces are safety rather than trusting consumers to shut out companies that are being exploitive. Mm. So can we talk about healthcare? Yeah. So let me just give you my kind of ignorant bird's eye view of healthcare here. So um, I guess at a moral level, at a philosophical level, I definitely believe that healthcare should be a human right. I think it's obscene that someone can go into debt when they get cancer and they're asking on the internet via GoFundMe page for the community to chip in and help them out, this person's struggling with a life-threatening illness. It just makes sense to me morally that as a society, we should prov make sure we take care of them financially speaking and have them just focus on solving that problem, right? So philosophically, morally, definitely think it should be a human right. I guess right now I'm torn between the kind of Medicare for all versus the public option. And one thing, again, just to go back to the the, the talking points on the other side, which then you can tear down. People will say, like, look, um, we can't get everything that we want with healthcare. So maybe if we take healthcare out of the free market and put it in the hands of the government, we get universalizability, but we don't get quality because the free market fosters competition and it leads to more quality goods. So the quality is going to be really bad. They're going to be really long waiting lines, the cost might go up, contrary to what Bernie Sanders says. These are the points that I hear on the other side of it. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know how, to the extent whether those things are true. Even if it is true that the quality goes down a little bit, maybe we should prioritize universalizability over quality. Um, so yeah, I, that's kind of my bird's eye view of it. And I definitely think it should be a human right. And I don't know why the public option isn't the more politically pragmatic thing to do right now as opposed to just going for Medicare for all. Yeah, so I'm really glad you asked this because I just took like a health econ class last semester. Um, and basically that kind of question, the quality versus inputs was like the whole thing. Um, so can I actually take your paper? Obviously people can't see this, but I can just draw it out and explain it. Um, so basically how we can look at this is inputs versus outcomes. And people typically measure health outcomes in terms of life expectancy, which isn't the best understanding of that because there's also quality of life. Um, but a lot of times all those things sort of align together, like countries with high like life expectancies also have just better general overall health. Um, so, I mean, we don't have numbers on this graph because they'd be too big, but the essential shape of it is that like most developed countries are like up here and the US is like here. So to explain this, I guess on audio, okay, that's hard. What, <laughs> what's uh, so yeah, you've, you've drawn a graph, what's the yeah. Y axis and what's the X axis here? So it's comparing health outcomes to health inputs. So how much 
people like per capita spend on healthcare versus what they get out of it. So how long they then live because of how much they've spent. Mm -hmm. So there's this curve, the production function, which is like the sort of mathematical estimate of what should happen if you put in an input, the outcome that like the life expectancy that you should have based on that. Um, and most developed countries do center around this same production function where they put in however much money and then they have a pretty high life expectancy because of it. The U.S. is a huge outlier out of any developed country where people per capita pay significantly more for healthcare and inputs than people in any other country, but have significantly lower life expectancies and lower quality of health. Um, and why, w why would you say that's the case? Because the people who are running the pharmaceutical companies are just, again, trying to squeeze as much profit? Well, there's, there's two basic economic explanations. Um, and these explanations also don't come from socialism. They are from the Yukon Economics Department, which is one of the most conservative like departments on campus or like in the country, I think. Um, I did not know that. But, oh yeah, um, it is the worst. <laughs> um, this class was fine though, it was, it was a good, good professor, I don't wanna knock him. Um, but basically they say there's either productive inefficiency or allocative inefficiency. And um, I think it's a combination of both, um, and they're both unique to the United States. Um, in terms of other developed countries that have like advanced healthcare systems like Japan and um, Canada and stuff like that. Um, so allocative inefficiency is this idea that we have, because of our healthcare system where we have private insurance and we have um, varying levels of coverage and cost and a lot of it is employer provided, people don't usually get to choose it or you know, if you're very wealthy, you get very high coverage. If you're not, you get very low coverage, et cetera. Um, because some people are spending so much, they are consuming kind of on the flat of the curve. So they, they have this, these very wealthy people, they can get access to more and more advanced technology and advanced treatments that are available to us. Um, but it's not really improving their quality of life because they're already at this like flat of the curve where like putting in more money like to get an even more advanced treatment doesn't really extend your lifespan or improve like your health quality. Mm -hmm. Whereas, there's a lot of people that are spending money because our healthcare system costs a lot of money, like to have private insurance costs a lot of money, um, but they still don't have this access. So their health outcomes are very poor and they're producing basically like some people are here and some people are here. So these people could get a very dramatic increase in quality here, like if this is outputs. Mm -hmm. Okay, obviously the, this is, can't visually do this. No, no, but, this, is help, this is whatever, screw yeah, the listeners, yeah. this is helpful for me. <laughs> okay, so basically like, these are like the poor people that have like low coverage healthcare. Right. Um, and then these are the very rich people that have like very high coverage healthcare. Right. They can spend more and more money, but you're only gonna live so long, right? So they're kind of staying here. And this is also a smaller percentage of the total population. Right. And these people would greatly benefit from a little bit more healthcare coverage, but they just can't afford that. So their life expectancy is here. And because they com like comprise like so much so much more of the population, our like average life expectancy is going to be more like here. So that's why as a country we're here whereas other developed countries are here because everyone kind of has this kind of coverage. Right. So instead of some people getting the most advanced treatments like on this like 
cutting edge, innovative, whatever, that extends their life like two or three years. But that's such a small proportion of the right, population exactly. is just the wealthy people. Instead, like a huge percentage of people are able to take some time off work and like get cancer treatment, get whatever fixed, like treat chronic illnesses. Um, by the way, we're like our, I think, I want to say 40%. I can send you some studies if you want to like look at them yeah. yourself. Um, but we have like the of the vast like it's almost half of people with chronic illnesses go without full treatment because of the cost in our country and like the next closest percentage is like it's like four percent of their chronically ill don't get treatment so we're just like like right so if you to be yeah (laughs) to be chronically ill in this country compared to any other country is like awful so if you if you think that healthcare is a human right this whole graph is just insane right because the quality of the care that you receive shouldn't be beholden to your financial situation right and it's also just in an efficient way so that's just the allocative part of it the other part is the productive inefficiency so some people are like okay wait actually yeah that's part okay so the idea with this is that hey, aside from all the inequality and like spending a lot of money and stuff that we don't need, whatever, the fact that we have all these middlemen because of our insurance companies that other countries don't have to deal with, like we just raise administrative costs to the point that people are spending way more than they need to like for what they get. A lot of this money is going to these middlemen and if we just eliminated it, it would increase the productive efficiency? Yeah, exactly, which is very simplistic and that definitely doesn't go to cover the whole story about why our healthcare is so expensive and we're getting nothing out of it. But it is true that like eliminating administrative costs would just save a ton of money. Um, and that's why analysis of a universal healthcare program that's funded through taxes rather than funded through like third party insurance companies and slash reduction in wages slash sometimes paying directly and like all these different things that need to communicate with each other and have these middlemen um, like Aside from all of that, where did I start my sentence? I don't Sorry. I, you, were talking, <laughs> you were talking about productive efficiency, the middlemen. Yeah, how... yeah. So, oh, right, right, right. So Medicaid and Medicare, um, they save a lot of money because their administrative costs are so much lower. Um, right. And so our whole, our whole system could be like that, and we could save a lot of money that way. Um, and that, oh, that's what I was saying. Yeah, that's why every analysis of, like, um, of a universal healthcare system shows it to be less expensive overall because even though you're paying more in taxes, you're paying significantly less when you like yeah. actually go to the doctor. So, so why not the public option? Um, okay. Yeah, you're okay. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Because that's really the issue where I'm torn on it. So the public option. I guess I'll I'll take off my Marxist hat and put on my electoralism <laughs> hat. Um, so the reason a public option isn't viable is that it's always presented as a way to show that a universal system wouldn't be viable. So um, a public option would be a buy-in program and it would, the biggest problem with it would be, it would be the additional cost to taxes, as you said, but it would still be on top of people having to pay for the other systems, the other, the private health care, the private insurance. So even if you keep your private insurance, you, your taxes are still going to co- go up yeah. to help fund this the public, public system. option. And people that are in the public option are still going to have to pay a little bit more as well. So it's used as a way to show that, oh, this isn't viable. It costs us way more money than we need to. 
and it would just be cheaper overall and better for everyone if we had private health insurance, which is not true. Mm. So that's really like the short of it is just that it's used as a way to kind of kill the idea of a public um, healthcare option or like a universal healthcare option. The public option was in the uh, original ACA, but it was killed by Joseph Lieberman, which is insane because the reason for a public option is to show that a universal healthcare system wouldn't work. Like it's a completely political, a public option only exists politically. It's not a viable solution. Mm. Did you want to add on to that? Because yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I want to talk about the politics of all this. Yeah, sure. Well. So this is a little bit separate from the politics of it, but um, the public option is sort of like the Bismarck model. There's like beverage and Bismarck models for universal healthcare coverage. Um, beverage is just um, single payer, where every single person pays taxes and then gets the same amount of coverage. Um, things are sort of like government or publicly run. Um, Bismarck system is like. Everyone has to have healthcare coverage, and there is a public option, but there's also private companies that people can use. Um, and countries that follow the Bismarck model tend to spend more money overall um, because having different levels of coverage introduces <laughs> adverse selection into the process, um, which is kind of like a self perpetrating problem, I guess. Like once, once there is varying levels of coverage and people can pay more for something. Um, People that have greater healthcare needs will be willing to spend more money for higher coverage plans, um, and people that don't will then buy the lower coverage plans. But then in that market for the high coverage plans, they have to end up paying out more than the companies anticipated because it's people with higher healthcare needs than the average population. So people pay in the certain amount that they're estimating will be enough to cover what people need to take out, but then people end up taking out more because it is a market that attracts high need users. Um, so then they have to raise their prices. So the, having these different levels of coverage for different people um, and having companies be allowed to set these prices um, just introduces more inequality and higher prices. It's much more efficient to just have everything under one system. How many countries right now have a kind of med Medicare for all system in place? I know I think Canada does, Great Britain does. It's the majority of Europe. The majority yeah. of Europe? Yeah, well, some uh, some European countries are Bismarck. Are Bismarck. Yeah, Germany why? is. Um, I think Japan is Bismarck. Why don't you give me an ask? <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, no one has the exact beverage model, which would supposedly be the most efficient, lowest cost, highest outcome model. But um, the UK has a sim has a version of it they, canada has well, a version of it they do for now we'll see what happens now um <laughs> but yeah there's most developed countries have something closer to the beverage model than we do are you still are you still concerned about the quality aspect of this so you talked about how well, the cost actually might be lowered the yeah. efficiency is going to go up so quality varies among the countries that have this because it's all about how much money as a society they decide to put into it um, so with the UK, they were tightening their budget and spending less and less and less on their healthcare system. So quality decreased. Still better um, than ours, though. Still better than ours. And they're paying quite a bit less. And there's much less inequality. But that's kind of the easy fix because you can decide where you want the money to go. Um, and you have this giant pool of money that is used more efficiently with no administrative costs. Um, so you can just be like, hey, we're going to invest more in our healthcare system. Or you could say, 
we're at producing at the flat of the curve, this isn't improving people's lives, we can spend less on it. Mm. Um, so that's just kind of a decision that comes up in like the nitty gritty of running that kind of system. Um, but there is, there's nothing to suggest that you would inherently have lower quality. People worry about moral hazard, which is that people will go out and consume more healthcare that they don't need once it's free or they can afford it. Um, but that's kind of an exaggerated concern and you can just set quotas on things. Like you can still be like, you can visit your primary care doctor once a year and that's it. So people aren't gonna just be running to the doctor all the time just because they can afford it now. Um, and it's also sort of a- People are just lazy. Would they do that? If yeah, exactly. No I'm like, problem? I have health insurance and I like yeah. have a lung infection for like six months and yeah, I'm too lazy to go. I'm yeah, unique I know. in that, but like-, <laughs> I, like, I, like They're like, ooh, let's go to the doctor like, today. Yeah. I don't like going Nothing's to the wrong, doctor. But... Like I just went to the dentist like a month ago. Oh, and dude, I've been putting sucked. that off. It's I the really worst. I went to the eye doctor too and I was like, but, oh, this also sucks. Like, yeah, why would I want to do this? Yes, I want to talk about the politics of this. You You said that- when it comes to the public option, it's really just a matter of politics, and yeah, there is no yeah. substance behind it. And this kind of speaks to the larger issue that we're seeing play out, I think, in the Democratic Party right now mm -hmm. between the so-called centrists and the Democratic Socialists, the yeah. Bernies of the world, maybe the Warrens of the world, who want more of a political revolution. Yeah. And you know, the argument for the centrist side is, like, look, we need to build, if we want to beat Trump in November, we need to build a coalition. And mm -hmm. the way to do that is to occupy the centrist lane so we could potentially win back some people that voted for Donald Trump in 2016, and we're not going to do that with publicly advocating socialism, with saying that we're going to kick however many millions of people yeah. off of their private health insurance, and I'll that you know even even if this is the correct way moving forward from a pragmatic and and moral point of view, maybe the country's just not ready for it yet, and if we want to sure. make change on the ground right now, maybe we should settle for centrism. So I'm going to say two things before Tori takes us over. Um, one, the settle for centrism argument is always made whenever the country tries to move more left wing. It is never the time to try and implement anything that's left wing. Um, and two, did I really forget it? It's always the argument that's made. <laughs> it's always the argument that's made. No, well, no, that's, it's always the argument that's made to keep like the Democratic Party specifically from moving more. Mm -hmm left wing mm -hmm. oh no now i remember um this week at ydsa we read an article from current affairs magazine which is a good left-wing magazine called the color of the color of economic anxiety which talks about how in re like a lot of people say oh a lot of obama voters went over to trump or I've a lot that, of yeah. yeah that really doesn't pan out when you actually look at the numbers most people just didn't vote like there was actually gross turnout was up, but actual turnout in the 2016 election was down. So I think Tori will yeah. talk more about this now. Yeah, um, I think like the main point is that there's this talking point that like socialism and left wing policies are like alienating, um, but I don't think that's the case. I don't think most people are centrist in the way that we understand it. There's a lot of people that are independents and they don't align with a party, right? They're not Democrats or Republicans. They might not have like a cohesive ideology that we could pinpoint on the spectrum on like a line. I feel like that's me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'm that's- I'm like a no good ideological fence sitter. <laughs> well, that's the thing, that's a lot of people. And like, they don't have like a label for themselves, but that doesn't mean that they're a centrist. That just means that they don't align with our specific 
like two main party establishments. Yeah. Um, they might support very radical policies on the right or the left. left yeah, there's like this myth of like the purple state or like the centrist um, and like this that this comprises the majority of population and there's like hardcore Democrats and Republicans. I just don't think that's the case. I think a lot of people can't be pinned down. I don't think they're right in the middle. I think they have opinions from various points of the spectrum. Um, and there are radical left-wing policies that would appeal to them, um, that might appeal to them more than someone that doesn't have much of, like, con no conviction at all. Like, someone who isn't a Democrat or Republican doesn't necessarily like Amy Klobuchar just because she's in the middle of a Democrat and Republican. They might be like, she has nothing that speaks to me. You know what I mean? Right. Whereas Bernie, like, healthcare might speak to them. Um, I don't think people are, I don't know. I don't think they're as scared of the socialism label um, as sort of the like journalist yeah. class makes them out to be. Um, I, I also think, oh, what was the other thing I was gonna say? Well, one thing that I want to jump in with mm -hmm. is like, I, yeah, I don't know what the answer is in terms of what's the best politically pragmatic way forward to get a Democrat elected, but this new strategy of putting Bloomberg forward just seems insane so to me. That, and I definitely, it does it does seem weird that he has no grassroots support and he's literally just flooding the airway. It, it, it does seem to be kind of dangerous to democracy for me. And I see a lot of people making this point on both the left and the right. Um, I guess that like the kind of another question that ties into that is, do you, do you think that there's a kind of civil war going on in the Democratic Party right now? Do you think that, Ber based on your knowledge, that Bernie was cheated in 2016 and that the higher-ups in the DNC might be plotting about plotting against him right now? There are all these you know, what's okay. so-called conspiracy yeah. theories on Twitter. I just want your opinion on yeah. those. It's not a conspiracy, and it's not a civil war, really, because there's not enough people on one side to be a civil war. The establishment of the Democratic Party in the United States is— overwhelmingly millionaires and billionaires, and they have the interests of being in the millionaire and billionaire class. They're capitalists. So they see this, like, not even, like, soft, like, I guess, like, I wouldn't say soft social democracy, but, like, medium, rare social democracy um, that Sanders puts forth of just unions are stronger, um, people have health care. Uh, what what are some other things that he likes? It's cool things universal for universal childcare, childcare. free education, uh, free education. Control. They see this as an inherent threat because a lot of their money is in those sectors. A lot of the like like take, bringing back tr people from the various theaters of war cuts into the because the Democratic Party gets just as much money from like Lockheed Martin and. Um, Sikorsky as the Republicans do. Because what they'll say is like, no, 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 it's not about the money, it's about beating Trump. And yeah, Bernie's but, just not the guy to beat Trump, but, but really it's about maintaining it's about their grip maintaining on power, their power and money. And Bloomberg especially sees Sanders since he's a billionaire. Who does he appeal to? No like, what, like his kind of middle-of-the-road so, authoritarian yeah, democratic so nothingness. Is I'm there gonna, a coalition for that? I... I hate Michael Bloomberg. I think more than I hate Donald Trump, just more, more so on the fact that Me too. I believe he'd be a more effective authoritarian because he's yeah. not an idiot. And he right, ran... Yeah. He, That's what makes him scarier. He, he ran New York as an authoritarian Didn't state. Didn't he try to ban like large sodas? He tried to yeah. ban sodas. He, he did it, he, yeah. Stop and Frisk stopped 700,000 people, I think, over its implementation. It. He ran the city of New York as like a... 
right-wing authoritarian state. And that's how he would govern. Yeah, he's not even a Democrat. No, he's he's not. Except for like a few issues like gun control. Yeah, he, he ran as, he governed as a Republican for two terms, then added in that you can run for a third term as the member of the other party. So he switched to a Democrat and became mayor for a third term. He's and I he, think he prevented Giuliani from running for a third term yeah, after 9/11. Yeah, he's a scumbag. I but <laughs> Not he's Giuliani's good. Yeah, Giuliani's <laughs> bad, but Giuliani I think is is a funnier personality than Michael okay, Bloomberg. Well. Um, also, you get infinite goodwill, I guess, from 9/11, which he's just been trying to coast off of for the last 20 years. But like Bloomberg is in the race simply to stop like a left wing the left wing momentum of Sanders Sanders specifically even and like Warren who is also like the establishment pick to be like oh she's progressive but like not too progressive what do you think of Warren she's she has lots of issues and she's she's the she was the established she was the original establishment pick to be the one that kind of pushes people away from Sanders to like oh the progressive but but not too progressive like mm-hmm. she backed down from every, like every progressive thing she has like medicare for all universal child care someone i heard someone call her i don't know if i agree with this but they said that she's Hillary Clinton with a bernie mask on i wouldn't say that i'd that say seems a little too i just thought i'd it was say funny. that the hillary clinton of this is Pete Buttigieg? He's the Hillary <laughs> Clinton Buttigieg? of this i'm convinced he's a robot i he's a he's a, he's a hyper <laughs> articulate Robot constructed I, in a political yeah, laboratory. He, he has wanted to be president since he got into politics, and he's. It's very funny to watch him talk at the debates because when he gets like confronted on things, you can tell that he's really mad, but he can't show it. <laughs> I don't like him at all. What, what 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 kind of politics do people have? Like my roommate, <laughs> my roommate likes Buttigieg. He's like, oh, well, educated people like Buttigieg. I'm like, that. Well, first of all, that means nothing. Second of all, you're an idiot. <laughs> but you you talk about talk oh, about yeah. the Democrats. Oh, yeah. So I just like comparing the electoral strategy of like the establishment Democrats of appealing to centrists with like Bernie's strategy, which is appealing to people that previously haven't voted and have felt like disenfranchised or unrepresented by the Democratic Party. Right. Um, I mean, we can look, you know, not that long ago, the Democratic strategy of appealing to centrists did not work out for them um, because Hillary lost. <laughs> so. Like- yeah, well, but they, I would say that she was a uniquely she, bad she, candidate. She oh, was, she was very bad, she was and she didn't bother to like campaign in like the Midwest the Rust Belt or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, but there's got there are people running now that I believe are uniquely unlikable. I, I believe, I believe like this is a very controversial thing among most of my uh, friends, but I believe that if if Buttigieg is the nominee, he will win three states. Like maybe, like I believe that he you won't said three, three states. Okay, oh, they said thirty at first. No, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I, I believe that he will lose Indiana. I don't even know if he can win here. Like he but is. Did you see what he did at the sidewalks uh, and uh, yeah, wherever he's from? <laughs> yeah, I saw a lot of the stuff he did that wasn't good. <laughs> do, do you yeah. uh, do you like do you can are the Democratic Socialists of America? Do they conceive of themselves as part of the Democratic Party? Um, it's I, like a Big Ten organization. So there's different. There's different positions within it. There's people that are anti-electoralists. There's also people that are social democrats. Um, I'm, I, I'll talk after you. Yeah. Um, the like the organization endorsed Bernie Sanders nationally, um, hmm. but that was like a contentious decision to endorse anyone at all. Yeah. Um, partially because you know he's not really like truly a socialist, um, and. 
there are yeah. yeah okay Gino thinks that he's secretly a socialist no, I, believe that, I mean so that's what the conservatives no, will so, accuse him of right so I believe they're like that, he's actually a secret I commie he is personally like a socialist like his personal beliefs are socialist but you can't run as like a full socialist electorally in any country but especially the United States because like the system itself will be like no you can't just turn like take away everything that we control so yeah, why not drop the name socialist then well is it's that politically be, pragmatic no that wouldn't be politically pragmatic because no one really cares i don't think like at the end of the day most people are like oh yeah socialism means people get health care and they can like people have their kids taken care of and stuff so it's like it's it destigmatizing that is just as pragmatic as not using it so it doesn't really matter Plus, he's he's called himself a socialist his whole career. There's no reason to drop it now. It would, it would actually show that he's like flip flopping or like being like wishy washy, which is something he's really good at showing that he's not. Like as a politician, he always pretty much sticks by everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what do you think about the? How did you think the last debate went? Um, I didn't watch it for my health, so Gino can talk about this. No, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the DSA for a minute. The like, DSA, the DSA for a minute, but then oh, I'll yeah. talk about the debate because we've yeah, been talking yeah. about that. So the DSA is an interesting because we haven't really talked about our organization at all. This whole podcast. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. No, that's totally. But yeah, no, go. I, no, it's fine. I, I, I just, meant to I, ask about that though. I, like, what are some of the main so just principles to light? Well, of the, the DSA. There's a kind of this problem with the DSA. I'm I'm a bit more. Um, I guess critical of the organization than most people that are in it. Like our old president was very critical. He was more critical than me, but oh, like, yeah. you know. Um, the problem with the organization is, well, not exactly the problem. I actually like this about it, is it's not like a party. Yeah. It, they say they, kind of this will run under whatever ticket will help them get elected the most and implement their agenda, which is a le- like a social democrat at the very least agenda. Um, but the organization is very networked, I guess you'd say. Like, the individual chapters don't, ne- like, have to answer to the national, like, board. Like, we are affiliated with Quiet Corner DSA, which is, like, this, so- this quarter of the state's chapter. Mm-hmm. But we don't answer to them, and we don't answer to national. We kind of do our own thing. Like, all of our initiatives on campus, like... Very bottom-up, kind yeah, of populist movement. It's, it's very much like we decide to do all the stuff that we do. We run it. We create the agendas for our own meetings. We handle the money, any money we would raise. Like, everything is controlled by us. Like, we don't have to... Like, we're supposed to pay dues, but, like, other than that... I pay dues. She pays really dues. pays dues. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, so... Like, the, I guess an issue that a lot of people see is either that, like, I kind of have an issue that National endorsed Sanders because it kind of pushed a lot of other chapters into being like, well, I guess we have to work with the, can- like the candidate, which they don't have to do, but, like, kind of presenting it like that could be an issue. Mm-hmm. So what I thought that they should have really done is be like, well, we are sympathetic and, like, and we encourage individual chapters to do what they want with, the like, the campaign, like, endorse or work with them or whatever, but we don't. The organization as a whole doesn't. Mm. But that's just me. Like, I'm not exactly an electoralist. Um, and I guess, like, going <laughs> going back a bit to the um, running whatever ticket or running on whatever ticket, like, we talked about this at the meeting this week, is that a very effective way, I guess, to do to implement these like more left-wing policies would be to focus more on local elections and like getting on to local like boards like um, yeah 
planning and zoning and uh, board, of board of ed. What's what's the water one? Inland wetlands. Uh, I'm a since I'm a journalism student, I did an internship over the summer, and I covered a lot of local meetings, and I saw like, oh, this is where all the decisions are made for an area, and it's like that is kind of like where you can wield power effectively. But this is just me going off on a tangent for a yeah. minute. Um, I watched the debate. Yeah, I watched the middle portion of the debate and like the very end, and uh, my thoughts on definitely it definitely the most fiery debate. It was the most interesting one because Michael Bloomberg. He did the classic rich guy thing, which is think that buy into your own hype. Like he thinks he's the smartest guy because he's a smart businessman and he thinks that he knows better than everyone. So he, it's very obvious he didn't really prepare for the debate at all. Like it looked like he was shocked that people were attacking him. I know. So like- How could he think that? They didn't think he was gonna, there's so many things to, you know. Cause there's the, like there, there's, uh, this is like a thing I think Elizabeth about. Warren just took a sledgehammer. Yeah. yeah, like that was, it was good for her, honestly. Like she looked the best. Cause like, like Buttigieg and Klobuchar were busy yelling at each other. Oh, they And Sanders was pretty much just being like, I'm going to talk about my issues. Like I always do. She got one hit in on uh, Sanders with the healthcare thing. But yeah, keep going. Somewhat. But like, and then Biden was there. Who I I I feel bad for Joe Biden just because <laughs> like like I don't like just please go retire like like our friend <laughs> go to a uh, beach one of our members Dan he talks about he was talking about this which is Joe Biden had infinite goodwill from the people of the United States after the Obama administration like because he was part of like this extremely popular like presidency yeah. he could have just retired and like done whatever he wanted and people be like oh yeah Joe Biden like they'd forget all the weird stuff he always did they'd forget how he. The sniffing uh, of sn- hair. like not just that the uh, he was against busing, right? And like and like they forget all that and they just be like, oh yeah, Uncle Joe. But instead, he decided to go on stage and just have his like dementia come out because I honestly all the think, worst things about like, him dragged all, yeah, up into the national media. Like like Mike Bloomberg could have done the same thing. Like he's a rich guy. He's infinite. He has infinite money. Like you don't have to do this, but he wants to be president. So now everyone knows that he's like a weird rapist allegedly. Um, and he, uh, and he like is extremely racist. Like there's all that stuff that came out over the last like two weeks where he's just saying like insanely racist things. And that was attacked a lot in the debate, which I thought was really funny where it's just like, this guy is like, even people that I don't think look good on stage, like Buttigieg, who I don't, I think he's very robotic and Warren who'd been struggling. Buttigieg is too perfect. That he's yeah. not authentic at all. He's not an to authentic. Me. No. Like it doesn't work on me at all. No. It's just like platitudes that I've heard a he's, million times from my political like, speech he, class in fifth grade or whatever. He is trying to be Obama. And like I don't particularly like the Obama administration or the things that were implemented during the Obama administration because it was very neoliberal, it was very centrist. But he was a generational orator. Like he Absolutely. is one of the best public speakers of the last 50 years. Absolutely. He has infinite charisma. And Pete I think Buttigieg, he's just a good man. Yeah, I mean, like you can criticize his he seems like a nice guy. and the drone attacks and, you know, whatever. Like, he seems like a nice guy. I, I don't believe anything about people like that with Pete Buttigieg. Like, he's trying very hard to be, like, this presidential figure, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, and just going back to Biden, I, I never bought into the hype that he was the front runner at all. No. I'm just like, how could... I mean, Nobody's the man. Sh- <laughs> yeah, he. I feel he was just the placeholder. But I mean, yeah, 
I feel like the people that supported him, they couldn't have been watching him. The man is in full scale cognitive so, decline. So I'm and again, I, I'm with you. I feel bad because I like Joe Biden, or I, I did. I, I don't necessarily like Joe Biden, but like I feel bad just because it's like, oh, it's just a granddad who just doesn't know where he is. But <laughs> the uh, like the big thing uh, I talk about, like I've had this conversation with Tori a lot about Joe Biden's supporters, is a lot of Joe Biden's supporters, like I see and I believe are just like regular Democrat, like they're Democrats. Yeah. Like they're people that are like, they're not even necessarily like very involved with the party. They're just people that would describe themselves as Democrats. And a big thing with them is they'll vote for whoever is like the front runner or whoever will be the nominee. So like people are like, oh, Biden people won't support like Sanders. They'll all go to Buttigieg or they won't even support Warren. They'll all go to anyone else. Like they'll go to Bloomberg. It's like, I don't believe that's necessarily true. I believe that they'll just they'll actually look at the other people and whoever appeals to them the most they'll go to. So he'll split it. So um, I guess where I'm going with this is just like the the traditional like view of the, like after this debate especially, but the traditional view of all the candidates I think is very, like their supporters especially is very different from like what is actually happening. Yeah, and I feel like we played this weird game with electability mm-hmm. where – People decide who they like based upon who they think other people like. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, why not just choose who you like? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe that's naive of me. But. Yeah, no, I have had this discussion with my grandparents so much recently <laughs> because they are, like, my parents are leftists, I would say. My mom calls herself a socialist, although I don't know if she exactly aligns with that. Um, but my grandparents are very, like, traditional, like, liberals, I would guess. You know, like, Democrats, they're not super left-wing. Um, and they're every time they're like, well, we just have to beat Trump. So this is, you know, Biden is centrist. And like, we talked about why we don't think most people are centrist, but they'll be like, you know, he appeals to these people and like, we're going to pick who appeals because we just want to beat Trump. And it's like, it's kind of this like intellectual game people play where people assume that they are smarter than the average voter. So they have to like plan what they're going to support based on what these like imaginary, like uneducated like racist centrist that they've like created but like most of America is um and I just don't think that's true like if someone appeals to you they probably appeal to other people too like we have a lot in common with people across the country so like there's no reason to try to be strategic about it like it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah exactly and like no one is excited to vote for Joe Biden. I cannot imagine why anyone would be like, for any reason. Like he, he, <laughs> he has to be a p- political placeholder. He was yeah. he was the front runner because they were going to bank completely off of his goodwill from the Obama administration. They're going to be like, oh, we're going to go back to Obama. Meanwhile, but Obama hasn't said anything. Hasn't said anything. <laughs> it's not even just that. He's just it's, lurking in the shadows. There's, there's this thing that like I see and a lot of people on the left see, which is that like the Trump admitted, like the Trump being elected kind of is like this no turning back moment. It's like, oh, the the like capitalist neoliberal democracy that America is is now just the vulgarness of it and like the actual reality of who is in charge has been revealed. It's guys who that can just buy power and just can bully their way to power. And trying to go back to something before that, like 2008, is just never going to happen. But I would I would interject and say that I view Trump as different than Bloomberg. I mean, the same in a lot of respects, don't yeah. get me wrong. But at least different in the sense that he had some grass, he had a grassroots movement uh, yeah. behind him, like, unlike Bloomberg. Like, he, um, Trump is popular really due to the fact that he kind of appeals to a very specific group of people. 
and the way that power, like the, the levers of power have kind of constructed the way this country chooses its leaders has kind of created the perfect storm to allow him to be the president. Like voter suppression, years of just stagnating wages, union membership going down, people just not caring about politics at all, not being appealed to by the Democratic Party, and then running in a, a historically unpopular candidate against him was yeah. like this perfect storm. And we're honestly lucky that he is as incompetent as he is, because he does horrible things. Trump is a, is a garbage human being who takes away people's health care, launches attacks on other countries, rips away children from their parents, puts people in cages. He's awful, but he's incompetent at it. And if someone competent like Michael Bloomberg was in charge, things would be so much worse. Yeah, I, I do think that, uh, I think the powers at B fundamentally misdiagnosed why he won. Yeah. Like, there's always this narrative that, well, oh, I guess, <laughs> turns out there's a lot more white supremacists than we thought. Look, like I said, I come from a family of Trump supporters. I can tell you that a lot of people voted for Trump either because they viewed it as a lesser of two evils or because um, they thought he'd be good for the economy. And he, I think he did. You know, he spoke, whether you think, you know, you can say he's a con man, which I would largely agree with. But, you know, he spoke to these people in the middle of the country. And instead of the left kind of re-examining itself and why he won, they just doubled down and went to the whole, well, they're more racist than we thought, and Russia got him elected. I Yeah, I know, I agree with that. And I think he appealed like in opposition to Hillary because Hillary was the status quo. Mm -hmm. She was like, let's keep things exactly as they are. Most people don't like the situation they're in. They're in. Yeah, people don't like the situation they're in. Which is an argument for yeah. Bernie, right? We're in the age yeah. of populist politics. Yeah, and people are suffering. They can't keep doing that. So either they're not excited and they don't show up to vote for her or vote at all, or they're like, well, you know what? Yeah, Trump has these problems, but you know he's an outsider. He did correctly diagnose a few issues with United States foreign policy. He's really racist about it and actually doesn't implement them. Worse, yeah, but. but but he at least correctly diagnosed that. Like, I shouldn't say diagnosed because he just kind of talks, but like that Wilsonian foreign policy is like stupid, <laughs> basically. Um, so I think that for people that are like don't have like. Uh, a lot of time or don't really want to do like an in-depth analysis of why things are the way they are they're like hey at least he's different and Hillary was not different whatsoever and like I do agree with you that like there aren't necessarily more like white supremacists but like there is like a huge racism problem in the United States sure and, yeah like I'm not denying that there's racism no I'm, I'm not implying that you are yeah, but yeah. like he kind of activated these people that even traditionally wouldn't vote like and it kind of shows that if you want to, like, win elections or whatever, or win political power, you have to activate these people that are disenfranchised. So, like, the answer to that should be you activate the people that don't vote but are sympathetic or agree with, like, more left-wing policies. You don't try to go after centrists or, as a lot of Democrats seem to want to do, go after Republicans and bring them over, mm. which is what their argument for, like, Buttigieg is like, oh, he'll bring over Republicans. And it's like, meanwhile, he has 2% support among African Americans, which is a major voting block of the Democratic Party. And you need those people to win. Like, you're never going to get enough Republicans to win. But if you have 2% support among black people, 
you're not going to win the South, and you're going to win three states, and I'm going to be right. <laughs> <laughs> so I know we're running out of time. I wanted to, connecting with that, this issue of, maybe we could end on this, um, overdiagnosing racism. So bringing back to the Charlie Kirk, uh, Dave Rubin, Candace Owens event, I find myself aligning with the left on when it comes to policy. But there's this, there's this, maybe this is a buzzword, but there's this kind of weird hyper-woke element to the, the left that I think goes too far sometimes and is not politically pragmatic. So I went to the Charlie Kirk, Dave Rubin, Candace Owens thing, and there was just so many protesters outside accusing them of being racist and things like this. And what I heard, I didn't hear any racism from them. I don't really know too much, of, so maybe you can alert me to things that they've said or something like that. I don't know too much about them, but um, it just seems like they were advocating for conservative positions, and a lot of which I didn't really agree with, but the public response on UConn to them coming to the campus just seemed completely overblown when compared with their actual rhetoric. Yeah, so, like, first of all, there's no way to separate economic policy and, like, race um, or gender or any of these other, like, social categories or identities that we have. Um, and, yeah, because, I would, let me just add one more yeah, thing. Yeah. I, I would agree with that, but it's just... Just like the cancel culture. So one recent example is um, Joe Rogan, a popular podcaster, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of semi-endorsed Bernie Sanders. And there was a lot of people on the left hand who just got in the left wing who got extremely upset about this. And just just this whole kind of cancel culture element where you, we're going to take the worst possible interpretation of what you say and hold that to you. It, it, it seems like it's setting up this ideal that no one can meet. And I think that it's actually doing a disservice to um, the left wing of the political landscape that's trying to get these things implemented. But that's just my perception Yeah, of it. so I think, like, I personally wasn't upset that he that Joe Rogan endorsed him or that he, like, advertised that. I thought that was a good idea because a lot of people like Joe Rogan. Um, I do think Joe Rogan is transphobic and has also said a lot of things that I don't yes. condone and I think should people should be educated on. Um, but I think that... I guess I sort of agree. So I disagree with that, but that's a whole other rabbit hole that we could go down. Okay, I sort of, like, cancel culture in terms of saying, like, you can never learn from something is false. Like, I think interacting with people that hold these views is sometimes worthwhile um, in a way that is, like, respectful and not accusatory because you can change their minds. Um, And I think, like, shutting them out of... You know, having like we need like a Big Ten organization to win an election right. or to have any social change. You're going to include people that disagree with you on like social issues or on anything. You know what I mean? Um, so you can't have a party or an organization of people that like uniformly have the same views and everything. Right. So I understand like there's going to be people that have. <coughs> Um, that hold beliefs that I think are, you know, transphobic or racist, and I'm going to have to work with them on things. Um, but I, there's no way to separate race from like any kind of political or economic analysis. Um, laws and our economic systems are like inherently racist. Um, most of these social categories were created with the intent to 
maintain the capitalist system. Um, racism is utilized by the right to turn workers against other workers rather than turning against the capitalist class. They're saying, hey, your problem is actually the immigrants, the Mexican right. immigrants coming in. It's not your boss. That's why you're losing money. Mm -hmm. So racism is a tool. And if we combat racism, that also leads to a better analysis of class. Um, right. And I would argue that from my standpoint, people are over-diagnosing racism and a lot of elements, not the whole left, but in a lot of elements of the left. And it's a kind of boy who cried wolf phenomenon where if you call enough people racist, the real racists are going to get cover because now you're expanding the word. So I would say that we need to be careful about how we use these terms. I mean, I guess I would have to see like specific examples. Yeah, um, talking in general. Yeah, I mean, there are, I guess... I feel like this is mostly just a problem on like Twitter where people yeah, that's might. Yeah, I was thinking. I might just yeah. be spending too much time on <laughs> like, Twitter, honestly. Because I, I mean, and I'm honestly, unleashing like, my rage on you. I, that's okay. I like, you know, I like care about social justice, and I think that was kind of the origins of my like, I guess whatever you'd call like activism or like political thinking was originally based on like from a social justice standpoint before I got into more like class analysis. Right. But even I see things where I'm like, okay, like this is an unnecessary use of identity politics. Like, sure. like yeah, like sometimes people are reading into things too much. But I don't really think that's like a systemic issue. I think that's just like a few incidences in certain circles of Twitter, which is like a very tiny proportion of the population. And yeah, I'm totally willing to uh, um, acknowledge that because it seems like a lot of times like the loudest most radical voices get amplified on Twitter and they're not necessarily representative of the democratic base or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I agree with that. So, like, I'm going to go kind of specifically into, like, Charlie Kirk. And sure, yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's really what so this question was. They, What's wrong with them? Yeah, They have said racist... It's not even just that they've said the racist things. Like, Turning Point USA is backed by financially by the Koch brothers, which are... Um, how do I describe them? They're Real bad. they're really <laughs> bad. They're billionaires who pump a lot of money into like the gun lobby, the uh, like anti climate change things, the Republican yeah. Party, and they do fuel like the like racist like sentiments. They did ice raids on their workers. They, they did ice raids on their workers. Like okay. there is this problem of white supremacy in this country, but it's it's kind of more inherent than just saying racist things or being outwardly racist. It's the right. fact that the police in this country inherently target members of like minority communities more than other members of, than other members of the like population. They, um, if you're um, black, you have a higher chance of just not getting a job just inherently because of your skin color. Um, the problem of racism is more, it's not an individual problem. It's not a problem with individuals. It's a problem with systems and groups. So the problem with people like Charlie Kirk or Dave Rubin is that the systems that they prop up and argue for are racist, they're homophobic, they're whatever you want to call them. Um, Can you give like a concrete example? I, I'm really interested in solving this because I'll listen to Dave Rubin's show sometimes, yeah. and I don't want to be inadvertently supporting someone so Dave who's Rubin, racist. He he do, he tends to platform like more right like right wing like thinkers. He's had like not to the like like um what's his name white supremacist leader what's his name guy got punched. 
Um, Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer. He hasn't had him specifically. Has he had him on his show? He might have. I don't know. But, like, he's had people that kind of argue for the same things like that. Like, I could look up examples and send them to you later if you want. Yeah, um, sure. Like, examples of him saying... And he argues strange things. Like, Dave Rubin is gay, but, like, he's argued... He's said that um, the gay community and, like, the LGBT community is going too far, which is always a dog whistle to say... Yeah. To be like, oh, be homophobic, it's okay. Um, and to kind of go into Joe Rogan a bit, I don't... I think it's a good thing that um, Joe Rogan endorsed Sanders more so that it shows that you can reach people that might not have these ideas, these, like, that might have bad ideas yeah. about certain people, like Tori said. Like, Dave, like, not Dave Rubin, um, Joe Rogan has said transphobic things in the past, and he has said racist things in the past. So my understanding of the trend, and let me just say, I'm not trying to be combative here. I'm genuinely fearful that I'm a, oftentimes too open-minded. Yeah. And I think that can be a virtue in some circumstances, well, in a lot of circumstances, because I'm more open to ideological views that um, I might not otherwise be open to. But I am worried that sometimes it can get me into trouble because maybe I'm supporting people or giving people too much credit that they shouldn't be getting. With the transphobic thing, with Jordan, it's a huge politically fraught issue, right? Yeah. But my understanding is that what he said is that he doesn't think that trans women should be able to compete in biological women's sports. So he said that, yes, and that's like an argument that I'm not... See, I wouldn't say that's transphobic. I would well, say, that's but, not the thing that okay. I'm thinking of. Like, there's another example where he's had trans people on his show and he's said things to them. Like, he once had a caller that was um, a trans woman and said that he yelled at her, you're a fucking man. That is transphobic. You can't do that. You shouldn't yeah. do that. It's not okay. But I'm not, like, canceling Joe Rogan. I'm just saying that he's done bad things, and I can acknowledge that he's done bad things. I don't particularly like Joe Rogan. But him endorsing these left-wing views or these, like, social democratic things shows that it is possible to reach people and, like, start a conversation with them about these sorts of things and then maybe kind of bring them back from this. Like, it's not – he's not inherently transphobic. He's not inherent. he said the N-word on his show. He's not inherently racist. You can kind of be like – He's also a comedian. Yeah, but I don't think you should say the N-word as a joke. That's just my opinion. But, like... I'd agree with that. But, like, it shows that, like, you can go, like, talk to people and be like, like, what you've done is bad, and here's why, and here's why you shouldn't do it. Yeah. And, like, you can reach people like that. Like, a lot of people that are on the left now had, like, edgy internet phases. Like, I didn't. Because I'm perfect. But, um, like, I know a couple of our members have talked about that. Like, oh, yeah. they used to be, like, right-wing libertarians or whatever. But then they were like, but then I kind of, like, read this stuff where I talked to my friends and I was just like, oh, I'm, like, I'm kind of being a dick. Like, yeah. being, like, a like homophobic or whatever just is bad. And it's like, you kind of just have to, like, exposing people to these ideas and being like, like, here's another answer is kind of the best way to win them over. Yeah. Like, it's not just being like, like, if someone is racist and they don't want to be like, talk to, they don't, they're just going to be racist and they don't want to talk to you about it, then don't talk to them about it. Just be like, okay, I don't, you don't have to work with them. But like, there are people like Joe Rogan and a lot of his listeners are just, they kind of don't really have a political identity. And like, you can reach people like that. It's very easy to, and they might have problems, but you kind of have to work with them and you can, you can meet them where they're at, but then you can bring them to where you are. 
But like, I'm also saying like, if a trans person or whatever is not comfortable with working with Joe Rogan, they don't have to. Yeah. Like, it's not even just like, oh, they don't have to do politics. They can just do another thing and they can like keep like people that are more comfortable working with people that are maybe not necessarily as woke as or whatever as other people. Right. They can, that can be kept to like a separate group of people. Can I just expand a little bit on the transphobe thing? God, just sure. before everyone who listens to this accuses me of being a transphobe. This yeah, is that's a, fine. You can say I'm wrong, but this is how I view the issue when it comes to trans people competing in women's sports. I view it almost like um, the abortion issue, where I feel like the abortion issue, people are constantly talking past one another and vilifying one another. So the, pro, so the pro-lifers will say to the pro-choicers, um, like, you're for killing babies. And right, and then there's and, and then the pro-choicers would say, well, you're restricting women's bodies. And for me, um, they just viewed the it. There's a fundamental philosophical disagreement here. One side thinks that babies are being killed. The other side is standing up for women's rights. And I don't think that pro-lifers are necessarily, a, you know, that they don't see it as them repressing women. They see it as them saving babies. And the pro-choicers don't see it as killing babies. They see it as stop telling a woman what she can or can't do with her body, right? So it's just, it's like this really hard fundamental philosophical disagreement and I don't think the vilifying is warranted. And I think something similar is going on when it comes to this debate between the so-called radical feminists and the trans exclusionary um, feminists, the TERFs or whatever they're called. The TERFs, yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So like, yes, there is a biological difference between men and women. And when I see a trans person, so I think that trans people, um, they should be able to do whatever they want. They should be able. They should be called by their pronouns. But then I see the other side of it, where the turfs are saying we're just trying to protect the biological women in this space of sports because there is a physical difference between biological men and women. So if you have a trans person competing in combat sports against a biological woman, that's not fair. So I, I don't think that. So with someone like Joe Rogan, to say that he's transphobic just because he holds that view, I think maybe you could say that he's wrong, but I think he sees it as as not being transphobic against trans people at all, but as protecting the biological women because they have certain physical disadvantages, generally speaking. So, That's kind of my basic perspective. Yeah, on so this. I'll talk about like that specific issue of the like, sports. I didn't mean to get into this whole debate, but no, we're it's here fine. Now. I mean, it's whatever you want to talk about. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the specific sports issue, but then I guess just like the broader issue of like vilifying, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of the sports, um, I think there's kind of a misunderstanding of biology as being binary um, because like the binary of male and female isn't like as one or the other like they're intersex people they're intersex people and like okay not to get all like i'm not a bio major i don't want to get into like sex ed right now but like um like people's hormones are kind of also on a biological spectrum so there are women who have you know two like x chromosomes um and have a vagina who have super high testosterone levels so that gives them an advantage in sports. Um, there's people that are really tall, and that gives them an advantage in some sports. There's people that, you know, naturally build muscle much faster. There's a lot of different biological components there's that also, make people natural athletes. There's also weird things where, like, some people that are, like, some, like, there's this thing where some men that are very thin or very short or whatever have very high testosterone, but they're not, it doesn't physically show. It's, like, 
bodies do weird things. It's not necessarily like on average men are have higher upper body strength, but that just is they're just kind of it's easier to build upper body strength as a man. That doesn't mean that you inherently have you're inherently going to be stronger than every woman. But isn't it usually the case that trans people who compete in women's sports like dominate in most um, sports? That's not the case. I think a lot of the like very famous like the articles that get shared a lot are the cases where they do dominate. Okay. Um, the particular sport, like I remember reading an article where like three uh, uh, trans track stars like won like a women's event, and people were like, "Oh, that's not fair." But it's like there's plenty of trans athletes in high school that just like do cross country or whatever, and they're not winning, so no one's reporting on that. You know what I mean? Um, so you would just say like, look, Cody, you're just wrong in thinking that there's this huge biological gap between men and women. It's actually a spectrum, and people have different physical well, advantages regardless so of their sex. Example of this actually, can I talk uh, for two seconds? Okay, okay. So there's Castor Semenya, who's a female or biologically female, like track, like Olympic, Olympian track runner. Yeah, she yeah, was. I've heard of her. Yeah, she was. She's actually forced to take testosterone. Um, inhibitors because her body is very like traditionally masculine presenting but okay. it's it's just her biology people accused her of being trans she's not she is a cis oh, yeah, woman I am aware of this she's case. a cisgender yeah. woman so and a lot of that kind of comes from this idea that oh trans people would inherently be better or worse depending upon what kind of trans person they are at a sport and it's not necessarily the case. She just has very high testosterone for a woman, and her body is just built more masculine traditionally than a, a woman's is. Yeah, and I mean, you're not wrong that there are like biological differences. Like we yeah. can look at the Olympics, and obviously, in most sports, the men perform better than the women. Yeah. But I think, you know, when we start trying to get down to like these, like where do we draw the line? Like where do we draw this distinction? How do we like keep this category separate so that it's fair? There's no actual fair way to draw a distinction because once you start talking about biologically male and female, then you have to bring in the like, okay, well then do we in, like include like the testosterone aspect yeah. with like Haster? Do we make p these people take drugs that inhibit like certain hormones? Like, Most of the time they are taking those like inhibiting hormones. Yeah. Like trans like, women are taking estrogen. Like they're, taking of, like they're taking testosterone suppressants. Like their bodies will be changed by taking, like their, their bodies will be changed by taking HRT or Okay. whatever they're taking also yeah. like there's the differences between a lot of like just people within the like the genders as we say like yeah i'm tall i'm six one i'm not as tall as wilt chamberlain i'm not as good at i will not be as good as basketball as wilt chamberlain was okay but that doesn't mean that there should be a separate like league for people as tall as wilt chamberlain and then for me to play so i, I can play basketball yeah so i don't think there's an easy answer yeah. to this i don't have an answer to how to make sports like fair but i think sports is one of those things where there doesn't have to be equality like in terms of like competitions like people have to have access to play sports people need to have the opportunity to like play sports and exercise but like that's one thing where you can have like winners and losers and that's okay and we don't have to like give everyone hormones so that they're at the exact same hard, starting this is a, point this is a weird conversation. yeah it's, it's a, a hard, hard question. it is a hard conversation because yeah. biology is like very like human biology is very it, it varies a lot between just individuals yeah let alone and i don't know anything about the biology i'm just yeah in the clouds so, thinking about philosophy right and like a lot like there's a lot of these like like turfs like specifically they make this argument but their argument is it they because they are arguing that 
there is an inherent biological difference between a trans woman and a regular woman, and they use this to kind of cause this divide between trans women and cis women. I said yeah. regular women. That's not right. I sorry. I apologize. <laughs> but I would say I would still say that. Um, but they're not. They're not. What I'm saying is they're not making it just in the sports case. They're saying it like, oh, trans women shouldn't be able to use. Uh, a women's bathroom there. I think that's silly. Of course, like they that should. is silly. Well, it, it's just a lot of tra- like turfs are. Yeah, they are actually transphobic. They're trying to pass legislation, like especially in Britain. There's like this very like it's very strange that it's Great Britain that there's this huge contingent of like. Great Britain Yeah, and I'm like I'm totally again I'm totally for trans rights. It's just this one issue with sports mm-hmm. where I'm kind of yeah, on the fence. Yeah, it's 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 very it's it's a hard conversation to have. Like there's a there's this image I see a lot where it's like these four Japanese runners, like yeah. female runners. And they're like all of these. They look traditionally masculine, but they're all they're all biologically fe- like females. They were born women. They are what they present as women. They're women, and it's just they their bodies are built that way, and they're good at running. Right. So it's just it's kind of a tough question to tackle. But I would I would still say that like okay maybe I'm wrong maybe Joe Rogan's or maybe Joe Rogan's wrong, but that that. that it seems like it's just a factual disagreement, then not a moral disagreement. It doesn't seem like he would—he's necessarily a transphobe in the sense that he harbors bigotry towards trans people. It seems like he just misunderstands the biology. He's—he's he's just ignorant. Yeah. Well, I think in that specific case, that is a question of just like biological misunderstanding and right. not necessarily transphobia. Like I know people that I wouldn't consider to be transphobic that have different opinions on the sports question. But like we mentioned before, the instance of him yelling at a trans woman and telling her that she's a man. No knowledge um, of this. Stuff like that. Like he is actually transphobic aside from that issue. Um, That doesn't mean we have to vilify him. It just means that we have to point out that that behavior is transphobic and like why it is. Like there's this thing where it's like people tend to view things like being called racist as like the worst possible thing they can be or being called transphobic. And it's like people sometimes do hold these opinions that aren't correct or just bad to have. Right, right. But that doesn't mean that they inherently as a person are transphobic or racist or whatever. And again, that's my worry. I don't want to over abuse the term because I want to know who the real transphobes are. Like, but what I'm I'm saying is you can have a racist opinion, but not be racist yourself. Like you can't, you might not hold the fact, but like you might have this internalized idea. So what the real thing is you have to like tackle that more so just by being like you have to reach people where they are and be like yeah this opinion you have this inherent this internalized idea you have isn't correct and here's why and like here's a solution or like here's a solution to kind of bringing them over more like you brought up earlier the thing about like the philosophical difference between people that agree with abortion and don't right but that's kind of a different thing because the anti-abortion like opinion has or the argument has always been a way to control women's bodies like individuals yeah like individuals okay. with i'm not aware of the history of that like individuals might hold like oh we're saving babies or whatever but yeah. like the actual structural reason for that movement existing is to control women so that's why like i don't exactly agree with you shouldn't vilify people on the other side because what we what are i'm pro choice by the way yeah no that's I, I i kind of assumed that um but like what what our YDS chapter does on campus is there's that have you ever seen the pregnancy van that comes on campus? Uh, I have, yeah. So I've what that, that is is it's actually we're gonna I guess this is a advertising thing sort of, but that is part of the Women's Center of Eastern Connecticut, which is a pro life organization 
which is part of CareNet, I believe, which is like this Caring Families, which is part of CareNet, which is this national organization of pro-life organizations that give money to these clinics that might have licensed medical staff, but might not. Okay. And what they do, I don't know if this one specifically does it, but it doesn't exactly matter because they will either lie to women and be like, oh, you're too far along or you're um, – like they'll give the black box label up, say, oh, the black box label on abortion drugs or an abortion procedure, um, it's very dangerous. You might die. And then you look at the black box label and it's, oh, you can die from bleeding, which is the black box label on every surgery you can undergo. Like every medical procedure, it's like, oh, you can die from bleeding from this. So it's like, oh, so they're misleading people or they just don't mention it. Like the, the van doesn't mention abortions. It doesn't say where you can get abortions. It doesn't say if you want or contraceptions. Usually I don't I think they've said they don't exactly talk about contraception. They're all insane. So you hear different things. <laughs> but they they do have an actual licensed nurse, but they're not going to tell you if a woman goes in there and says, I will. I want to get an abortion. Yeah. I, they're not going to drive you there. They're not going to tell you where the Planned Parenthood is, which is. In Willimantic, behind the Taco Bell. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I've seen it. But I live in Willimantic. Yeah. So the uh, like the the reason that we we go out there on the Fridays they come here. That's what I was talking about. And we kind of stand out there with like literature from Planned Parenthood and signs and just like tell people when they come by. Here's what the uh this van actually does like here's right. what they stand for they're going to tell you they don't but they do because it's brought on campus by the students for life like which yes. is the pro-life group so it the problem that we mainly have isn't even necessary well it is necessarily that they're anti-abortion but it's that they're misleading people and they're lying to people there's nothing that says they're pro-life on the van or in some of the literature they give or if they you talk to them until you actually say what if I want to get an abortion? They'll say, well, we can't tell, help you with that at all. Hmm. So um, I respect your response to these things. Instead of like, I don't know, trying to shut them down, you just counteract it with here's so, some more information or with like, the Charlie Kirk thing. Like, Let's hold a counter event yeah, to explain like, why like, they're wrong. Like the the idea behind that is kind of to take away like crowds from them so well, that yeah, they will just stop coming. Like eventually our goal kind of is just the van shouldn't be here because it's lying to people but like we're not going to actively be like oh kick you off campus we're just gonna be like if enough people are just like yeah this isn't real like i'm not gonna go talk to them they'll probably lose interest with us and just go away well that's just kind of my views on free speech in general that the best way to counteract that bad speech isn't to ban it because i feel like that kind of has a tendency to push it underground and can make that people more radicalized so mm -hmm. it's, it's it's to have it out in the open and say this is why you're wrong but i know we're getting to the end of our our time here. Um, so I want to thank you for right. coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation, guys. Yeah, thank All right, cool. you. I think thank you've you. partially converted me to the revolution. That's oh, good. good. Yeah, thank you for having us. And sorry if we seem angry. We're not angry at you. Like, Oh, not at all. all. Like, yeah, we, no. just, we just both get into this yeah, a lot. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Oh, yeah. um, I actually want to plug a book I've been reading. Yeah. <laughs> but um, because this is actually, it's a good intro to, like, left-wing, like, thought and stuff of, like, uh, looking at the traditional way it's capitalist societies run in like a more community oriented way like via socialism it's called um it's astra taylor's democracy may not exist but we'll miss it when it's gone mm. uh harry gave me this oh, um okay. so he's a member of our club and it's uh if you want to look at it for a second yeah yeah it's it's just like 
it kind of, I've been going through it for the past couple months, and it's just been it's like interesting because it it talks about the dichotomy between tradition, like the traditional view of how like a capitalist society, well, not necessarily capitalist, but it is about capitalism, um, kind of organizes things versus how a more democratic, like not necessarily, well, not necessarily socialist, but like it is socialist society would like organize it. So it would be like conflict versus consensus. So like traditionally you would, there'd be two conflicting sides, but instead a group of people would come together to talk about that. I'm, fi- I'm finishing up. Talk, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I know we went to over talk about it, no, it's okay. but it's just an interesting way if people are looking to get into more left-wing politics. It's actually a really good intro to it. I'll, I'll, yeah, maybe I'll include a link to it um, sure. at the end of the show notes. So thanks again, guys. Thank you so much. All right, thank you.